0: Welcome, happy warriors. Welcome to each and every one of you to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveals how the world really works. Yes, each and every one of you happy warriors. You and you and you as well. Each of you is a welcome part of our community of happy warriors. Happy? Well, that's because you are someone who has come to understand that happiness is not a reaction to outside circumstances, it is a decision that you make. You don't need outside factors to make you happy. You have decided that your default condition for happiness and success is a reasoned, determined, deliberate decision to be happy. And you're also a warrior because you understand that joyful success in life comes from struggling against the natural resistance that in the nature of the world tends to obstruct and resist every step you make in the direction of self-improvement. I call it spiritual gravity. You try to get airborne and it tries to keep you earthbound in every effort you make to improve any one or all of your five F's. Your faith, your finances, your family, your friendships, and your physical fitness, it throws up obstacles and temptations. But as a happy warrior, you know that every single victory you win, no matter how small, brings other victories in its wake. And so that's why we are not just warriors and not just happy-go-luckiers, but we are happy warriors. And one of the things that happy warriors realize is that our ability to progress, our very success and our happiness depends upon our ability to impose on our own limits on our freedom. That's right. We have to be able to restrict, control and regulate the freedoms of life. Being able to step off the slippery slide that seductive ride of freedom and imposing upon ourselves our own logical and brain-centered restraints and restrictions and regulation, that is the direction in which happiness and success lie. Because so many people confuse license with freedom. Licentiousness is doing whatever your feelings drag you towards, freedom is. Is what you have when you are capable of imposing limits and restraints upon your feelings and upon your emotions. And where that is so particularly important is when you are being carried along by an avalanche of emotions. Coming to trust our emotions is a terribly dangerous thing. And a happy warrior realizes that emotions are wonderful. We should all have emotions and we should feel wonderful emotions. We should feel emotions like love and appreciation and gratitude. We should not indulge in emotions like anger and jealousy. Emotions are real, but we don't regulate our lives on the basis of our emotions or our feelings. No, we impose limits and restraints and controls and restrictions rather than just acting on our emotions and doing whatever we feel like. But even more importantly for today's show, is learning that as bad a mistake as it is to act on our emotions, it is seven orders of magnitude more dangerous to think according to our emotions. The dreadful peril is thinking that one is being rational when in reality one's entire line of thinking is being driven by emotions. Please, for your own good, believe this to be true. But if you doubt this... Just think about the decisions you've made in your own life while in the grip of emotions like anger, love, desire. Remember the time you decided to spend a lot of money on something you barely ever used. Remember the person with whom you formed an alliance that you later wish you'd never met? Remember the time you let fly at someone and said things you wish you'd never said? Look, that has happened to all of us. Any of us who have lived more than two decades have those regrets. And so the thing that I always like trying to help you know is to know when your thinking is being shaped by your heart and not your head. I'm going to help you learn to avoid allowing your emotions to cloud your thinking. Most importantly, I always want to help you identify when it is happening because it is so easy for it to happen. It is so easy for emotions of your heart to overwhelm the rational thoughts of your brain and for you to become blissfully and often tragically unaware of the danger. These are things that all of us have to understand and all of us really need to know. I uh, I, I think of the formulation, you know, my daughters often use the phrase, it's not okay. And so with thanks to uh, Tamara Sasson and to uh, Caitlin Johnston, let me give you some examples of things that it's not okay for a grown adult in 2022 or any time to be thinking because thinking these things means you're in the group of emotions. Okay, it's not okay to be a grown adult without reflecting on the possibility that maybe, just maybe, things are not quite as they seem, right? It's not okay to be a grown, happy warrior and believe that serious military conflicts consist always of, oh, it's the good guys fighting the bad guys, as if it's like a children's television cartoon show. It is not okay to be a happy warrior and to believe that Russia is behaving aggressively for no other reason than because Mr. Vladimir Putin is evil or he's mad or he hates freedom. It's not okay to be a happy warrior and believe that anyone who disputes the TV and mainstream narratives about what's going on in Ukraine is automatically defending Putin or automatically thinks that he's wonderful. It's not okay to be a happy warrior and be fine with only knowing one side of the story. It's not okay to be a happy warrior and believe that politicians who've demonstrated ice-cold indifference to their own citizens suffering from bureaucratically imposed pain resulting from mistaken COVID reactions, care passionately about the plight of the Ukrainian people. Really? It's not okay to be a happy warrior and believe the same Western media institutions who've lied about every war are now suddenly telling the truth about Russia and Ukraine. It's not okay to be a happy warrior and believe that America is orchestrating the economic collapse of Russia in order to defend Ukrainians. It's not okay to be a happy warrior and believe the Ukraine crisis is about the West's noble and valiant struggle to defend Ukraine's freedom, democracy, and sovereignty against the the delusional megalomania of Putin. Look, (laughs) that's a comic book plot. That's not reality. The world is a lot more complex than that, and happy warriors know this. It's not okay to be a happy warrior and believe that a war is being fought between an evil monster who is just the same as Adolf Hitler and a virtuous comedian of surpassing bravery and wisdom. No, that's not how the world really works. It's not okay to be a happy warrior and believe that we're seeing an unprecedented wave of censorship because the European Union or Silicon Valley mega corporations and TV and media uh, suddenly want to protect everyone from disinformation. It's not okay to be a happy warrior and believe. That everything which doesn't align with what television and media tells us about this war is Russian propaganda. No, it probably isn't. Maybe we just have to know that it just possibly may be that things are not always exactly what they seem to be. And uh, that brings me to uh, something That happened in 1975. I was a young wannabe immigrant from South Africa, and uh, I started an enterprise in Silicon Valley. I uh, lived in an apartment in Cupertino, uh, right next to Santa Clara, and uh, it was one Saturday afternoon. I was observing the Sabbath, the Shabbat, and so I was not working, and I was not on the telephone or, or on anything else. I'm trying to remember. I don't think I had a computer then. I had I had a nifty calculator, but no computers yet. We're talking about 1975, like I said. And uh, I went for a walk, as I often did on Shabbat, and I walked around the neighborhood. And uh, only a few blocks from where I was living, I saw workmen working on an, a little low single-story office building, and they were getting it ready for an occupant, and they were placing over the door um, a white apple with a bite taken out of it as a logo of the company that was moving in. And I stopped and I asked, "What's you know, what is this? Oh, so it's it's two guys who've started um, making computers. What's computers? Well, it's a complicated. It's an electronic thing, and um, these guys are uh, – uh, have been working out of somebody's garage and now they're moving into this place. Now, you know, you put yourself in my position, 1975. Um, somebody's just recently arrived in the United States, um, very young and inexperienced. And uh, I mean, all I can say is that I've often thought to myself, how would my life have gone differently? Had I waited there until Steve Jobs or uh, Wozniak arrived and and said to them, "Hey guys, listen, you know I'm I'm not particularly good at very much that you need, but how'd it be? I'll I'll clean the floors. I'll be a a general gopher for whatever you need, and um, you know I I can write English fairly possibly as you know as well as most." And so, if you need writing done, I'll do that. What do you guys say? You you know, you don't even have to pay me a whole bunch. Um, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you what: I'll I'll do it for free for the first month. See if you want to keep me. What would have happened? You know, and <laughs> in the category of what ifs, uh, that one often entertains me as I think uh, uh, back to those days in 1975. So why am I interested in, in, in that in general? First of all, uh, you know, I'm a fan of, of Apple computers. I, I think they're extraordinary. I think the number of rules that Apple broke over the years, for instance, uh, you know, don't make things and then decide you're going to educate people how to use them. That 's a really bad idea, you know you 've got to respond to what people need right that 's the conventional wisdom and by the way it 's a good idea for you and me to follow that wisdom but um Steve Jobs didn 't he built a tablet, I think he called it an iPad from the beginning, and nobody had the slightest idea of what you'd do with that or why you'd need one of those and all of a sudden, everybody needed one. I resisted it for the longest time I said it 's ridiculous. I have a phone. And I have a computer. That's all I need. And then um, I was doing a program in Southern California for a television ministry of Benny Hinn. It was a very interesting uh, afternoon I spent at his TV studios. And at the end of it, uh, there was a public uh, tie. The evening, they let members of the public in to watch the the uh, taping of the uh, the evening program there must have been a few hundred people that was all all very very interesting I can tell you that but um, as thanks to me for being there and and taping stuff with him he gave me an iPad and I came home and I said to Susan Lappin um, you can have this I have I'm, I'll be honest with you I have no idea what anyone needs it for but um, it's you know it's a fairly expensive device so you know see if you want it. She opened it beautifully packaged. I mean, the thing was beguiling, just the way it was packaged. And we we took it out, and um, after a little while, she took a look at my face and she said, "Thank you for offering it to me. That's very sweet of you, but this is for you, and I think you're going to enjoy it." <laughs> well, I've uh, I've not been without a uh, a tablet. Since then, sometimes Samsung, sometimes Apple, but I've not been without a tablet since then. So um, uh, it's um, breaking the rules, not for everybody. Some people get away with it. But um, 30 years, is it? Yeah, 30 years after that incident in 1975, where I saw the nascent. Embryo of Apple setting up their first office in Cupertino. Uh, 30 years later, it's 2005. Apple is well and truly a a giant successful corporation shaping the world. And um, Steve Jobs um, has not much longer to live, unfortunately. And he's giving a commencement speech at um, at Stanford university in Silicon Valley. And, um, he, uh, you know, it's an interesting speech and you, by the way, you can do what I did, which is you can bring it up on, on YouTube, or you can, you can read a, a transcript, a script of it, you know, whatever, whatever you feel like. And, uh, there is a certain phrase, there's a certain section of the speech about halfway through. And this is what you hear. You'll, Pardon me, the quality is not very good here. You've got to find what you love, and that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work, and the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking, and don't settle. So, um... I I don't know if you could if you could hear that so well, but but you know let me let me tell you exactly what he said. I'll read you from the transcript. You've got to find what you love, says Steve Jobs, and that is as true for your work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better. My dear happy warriors, um, one can admire a person like Steve Jobs and at the same time declare with utter certainty that what you just heard him say in his speech at Stanford University in 2005 and the transcripted words I just read you is utter, unadulterated, bilge water, garbage, waste of time, rubbish, fundamentally untrue, a lie. It doesn't mean I don't admire so much of what he did, but what he just said and what I just repeated to you Is a lie. It's complete and utter nonsense. Now, if there is one lesson for today's show that I want each and every happy warrior to take away with you, and that is watch what people do much more than you pay attention to what they say. So if you are a woman and you are contemplating a relationship with a man, and you're trying to figure out, you know, is it worthwhile getting involved with this man, maybe marrying him? Uh, and you say, well, look, you know, he's he's told me he loves me and uh, he's told me he, how much he likes my family and he's told me how eager he is to find a good job and build a good career. My answer to you as it has been to, oh, uh, I'm going to say, um, how many young women, probably in the hundreds, not in the tens or scores, but probably in the hundreds, not as many as a thousand, but certainly several hundred young women, please, please pay very little attention to what he said. Pay a great deal of attention to what he does. Take a look, track record with a man really counts. Look and see what he's done. Uh, you're deciding to vote for a politician you know a, a governor a senator a congressman local councilman state representative whatever it president whatever it is please please you're a happy warrior you know already that you should completely disregard whatever that politician he or she said he or she is trying to get elected totally disregard anything they said Watch the track record. Watch the track record. You know, uh, back in 2008, um, I could tell you what certain politicians said about illegal immigration. Would you like to know what they said? Yeah, I think you probably would. It helps to make this point. It was actually 2005, then-Senator Barack Obama, long before he became president in 2008, uh, 2005, three years earlier, here are his words. We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked, and circumventing the line of people who are waiting patiently, diligently, and lawfully to become immigrants in this country. Um, In 2009... Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer, a huge problem for this country, by the way, but Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer in 2009 said the following, illegal immigration is wrong, plain and simple. People who enter the United States without permission are illegal aliens, and illegal aliens should not be treated the same as people who enter the U.S. legally. (laughs) Um, How about a guy called Senator Joe Biden, right, later to become president of the United States? In 2006, uh, two years before he became vice president to Barack Obama, he said the following, let me tell you something, folks, people are driving across that border with tons, tons, hear me, tons of everything from byproducts, from methamphetamine to cocaine to heroin, and it's all coming up through corrupt Mexico. So if you would listen to the words of Barack Obama and Charles Schumer, and Joe Biden, you would conclude that these are men who would stop at little in order to secure America's southern border. And yet, by now, you know that Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Chuck Schumer have done everything possible, and in some cases, that constitutes an enormous amount to basically render the border between the United States and Mexico non-existent with... um, Millions, millions pouring in. And uh, in only the short space of time since the beginning of 2022 until the time I uh, tape this show in mid-March, huge numbers, right? Well over a million in just a short space of time uh, into the United States through the southern border. No controls, no COVID testing, no masks, uh, no nothing. So, uh, please, pay attention mostly to what politicians do rather than to what they say. Pay attention to what men do rather than what they say. Now, um, you know, why do I speak about men and politicians uh, and all politicians of any gender? But when it comes to marriage, um, it's... It can make a difference uh, to for a man to to hear very carefully what a woman says. You see, uh, one of the important distinctions between men and women. I'm going to say something now that I hope I'm not going to regret saying, in the sense that um, it um, it it could turn you off. And there is so much important information I need to impart to you yet in today's show that I uh, I, I would be concerned, and I would be filled subsequently with great regret if I discover that what I'm about to tell you uh, is going to um, uh, cause you such dismay as to distract you from hearing uh, what I'm going to be saying afterwards. But um, I, I feel I have to tell the truth and take my risks on you at least saying to yourself, at the very least, This doesn't sound right to me. I'm not sure I agree, but let me put it aside and examine it in the light of my own day-to-day experiences, as opposed to the current mood in the climate in the West, um, the United States, United Kingdom, and many, many other countries, unfortunately, where people feel uh, the right to be protected from ideas with which they disagree. And the response to something with which you disagree becomes anger and resentment and withdrawal rather than contemplation and engagement. All of that is by way of a caveat when I tell you that one of the important distinctions between men and women is that men do, women are. That doesn't mean women don't do anything. They do a whole lot. And it it doesn't mean that men aren't anything. No. But in general, a man is measured by his performance. A man is measured by what he accomplishes, by the work he undertakes and what he achieves. A man is chiefly judged by his achievement, by what he does. A woman is chiefly judged by what she is. She's... A good woman. She's a sweet woman. She is a beautiful woman. She is a an inspiring woman. And that is why it is that uh, until people became conditioned during the uh, perhaps the first two decades of the twenty first century, but until then. When men sat next to men on an airplane and they started chatting with each other, it was clear that both uh, were on a trip, a business trip. Uh, the very first question that they would generally ask is, um, what do you do? People want to know, what field are you in? Or in other words, as I prefer putting it, how do you serve God's other children? That's really the question. And that is the question most of us really want to know when we meet a man what do you do because deep down we understand that we men are defined largely by what we do we are creatures of action and uh it is it is not an accident and i i want to speak the next uh section in somewhat coded terms so as that um uh, it remains a family-centric show and something you can comfortably listen to with, with anybody. But how would it be if I say that um, during times of uh, maximum masculinity, during times of intimacy, um, it is generally clear that the doing is a masculine part of things. When we speak about a male performance, right, the pharmacological manufacturers know exactly what they're talking about, and they know that their male audience will get what they're talking about. Uh, Very rarely, if ever in my life have I ever heard female performance being spoken of. Okay, so um, uh, going back to sitting on an airplane If you sit next to a woman on the airplane, not so much now because nobody would take their lives in their hands by trying to say what I'm about to say, but it is what men really want to know. And uh, back, as I say, before the start of the 21st century, it was much more common. Basically, uh, sitting next to a woman on the plane, the first thing you want to know is whether she belongs to a man. Is she attached? And it makes no difference how old she is. You kind of want to know what her family situation is. You may well say, you know, what what work do you do today? Because things are what they are. But you probably recognize that sitting next to a woman a stranger on the plane, you get talking. One of the things you want to know is her family con- situation. Does she have children? Does she has a husband. What's going on? That's kind of what you want to know. And that is secondary when you're sitting next to a man on the plane. Okay, that takes me to the end of the section, which um, I think was potentially uh, dangerous in that it could have upset some of you. Again, what I hope is that even those of you who rejected it and said to yourselves, ah, come on, that's ridiculous, that's old-fashioned, that's not the way people really are, uh, might stop and put it aside and think later on, hey, you know what? Maybe there are aspects of maleness and femaleness that regardless of cultural pressures and regardless of societal change, do not change, (laughs) right, right? And that's why it is that when I say, women, if you are contemplating a serious liaison with a man, please pay much more attention to his actions than to his speech. But uh, that's not necessarily uh, what the same advice I would give to a man contemplating marriage and he's getting to know this woman. And uh, he remembers at the back of his mind words from his rabbi, something to the effect that pay much more attention to what she's done than to what she says. No, uh, that's that's not correct, because I would strongly discourage a young woman from marrying a young man of 25 or 26 who um, has not really got any achievements to his life, to his name. I would really discourage that. But I could think of many, many wonderful marriages that begin with a, you know, shall we say a 25-year-old guy who's done something with his life already, uh, marrying a young woman who um, has, you know, she she finished high school and she uh, moved in with an elderly aunt who needed some help around the house for a year. And then after that, she taught kindergarten for two years. And he marries her because she's a wonderful, she's beautiful, um, she is um, nurturing and feminine. That's the word. She is feminine, and um, and that's really, really necessary. So yeah, these are, are differences between men and women. I hope I have not antagonized you. Please tell me I haven't antagonized you. Here's one of the best ways to tell me I haven't antagonized you, and that is join. Our membership of Happy Warriors, become one of us. Be part of our community because communities grow in usefulness as they grow in size, like any network, right? Um, When uh, in the very infancy of email, uh, there was a system, and I forget the name of it. I I shouldn't have even started telling you about it. Um, uh, It was not AOL, but it was another uh, system and it faded away because it didn't catch on. Uh, it, it's a, it, some early adopters. I actually used to communicate with William F. Buckley on that uh, on that particular network. I'm talking about it, 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 the name. I forget for the moment. It's not that important. Um, but um, it is. Uh, it, it faded away because the size of the network didn't grow. So um, hop along to wehappywarriors.com. All right, that's our special website for Happy Warriors. The website is www.wehappywarriors.com. And right there, you will find the opportunity for uh, joining us, becoming a member and being able to connect with us. Uh, you will get to hear the lap and Lens that uh, we broadcast and make available to members uh, three or four times a week and you'll be able to comment and communicate with others about the podcast you are now currently listening. There's this Rabbi Daniel Lappin show episode. And uh and that way um you can let me know that no, it's fine. We happy warriors can handle it when you tell us truths that are painful and that provoke profound cognitive dissonance in our souls. But you carry right on because we are happy warriors and we can take it. We can handle it. We are big enough to be able to do that. And by the way, today this requires considerable bigness of spirit to be able to hear something that goes against your emotions. See, that's what I was talking about in the introduction, the preamble to the show. Uh, I was saying that we are all trained today, accustomed to, to react emotionally. And if we hear something that we feel is wrong, our immediate response is, that's offensive. I don't agree with that. Hey, take it easy. Think about it. You know, And, and I, I, I encourage you to do this all the time. I mean, not with everybody. If you're listening to a complete fool, then you don't necessarily have to waste brain storage on keeping in mind something he said and then exploring it and analyzing it. No, you don't have to do that. On the, You shouldn't really be wasting time listening to him in the first place. But if you give any credence whatsoever to value on the part of the speaker and he says things with which you don't agree, give it a little bit of thought. And by the way, business professionals usually have this down because to succeed in business, you have to know how the world really works and one of the ways the work world really works is that when you ask a professional uh, for advice you might speak to an accountant you might be speaking to a marketing expert you might be speaking to a legal expert the person may well say something which goes against every one of your instincts well why are you wasting money consulting him if you don't think he knows something you don't why would you waste your time let alone your money and so business people usually are already uh, self-trained to hear things they don't want to hear, to be able to listen to something that rubs them the wrong way, irritates them, upsets them, uh, causes them emotional turmoil. <laughs> yeah, we business professionals are accustomed to that and it doesn't mean we automatically accept it at the end of the at the end of the day we don't but we are able to listen and analyze we have not succumbed to today's university campus uh, methodology which is to instantly erupt in an indignant outburst of rejection as soon as your ears pick up anything with which your heart and your emotions disagree so uh, back to uh, a man who many of whose achievements I admire, and many of them, many of the things he said, I don't. But uh, but remember this basic rule, and happy warriors understand this point I'm about to make, which is that human beings are not like balance sheets of your finances. Right? In um, in a balance sheet, if I've got uh, seventy five dollars and I owe hundred dollars. Then the net result is negative twenty-five. Um, my liabilities are twenty-five dollars. I, I you know, it's it's a debt. Um, if uh, you know, if um, if I have uh, six bags of cement, but I've promised somebody eight bags of cement, my current inventory status is negative two. And so if I get another shipment of 10 bags, I actually end up with eight because two have to make up the deficiency. And so in in business and finance, we can do plus and minus calculations. But please know, gosh, this is an important thing. Here are the two important things of today's show. Number one, uh, particularly with men and with all politicians, pay attention to what they do much more than to what they say. And the second important point of today's show is that with human beings you cannot do basic bookkeeping operations. In other words, let us say, talking of Steve Jobs, let us say that uh, Steve Jobs has, shall we say, uh, five plus points he built a big company and he uh, responsible for the starting of an animation studio and he's built apple and he innovated the iphone or we can list all these shall we say five plus things and then we can also uh, end up with um, you know shall we say two negative things we don't say at the end of the day oh well um you know he's he's worth three plus three because he lost two, he's just worth plus three. Or, you know, how about, um, about different people? And a lot of people have misunderstood me in the past over the years. Uh, I've said, for instance, and I stand by it, that I think that uh, Vladimir Putin of Russia is one of the most capable um, statesmen in all of Europe. And um, I think that's so. I think Viktor Orban of Hungary is another top-rate statesman in Europe. Now, uh, that means, people think that that means that I'm completely unaware. No, I I don't do elementary bookkeeping on God's ultimate creation, the human being. I don't. When I say God's ultimate creation, by the way, uh, a little child's finger is a greater creation than the Grand Canyon is. And uh, I don't think that you want to do that with people, you don't. You don't want to say, "Oh well, uh, there's nothing credible, there's nothing admirable to, at all about this particular statesman." Shall we say, Mr. Putin? No, that's not true. He's a complicated being. He's a human being. There are many things to bemoan and disparage. Uh, there are also things to admire, and to and and it's okay to say that it would be nice if the country in which I live was led by somebody who was as uh, committed to the success and the interests of that particular country, and so on. Again, these are all debatable things, but the bottom line is uh, to understand that we don't write off people. I might say, you know, Kelsey Grammer is a fabulous actor. He really is terrific. That in no way suggests that I would like my son to study Kelsey Grammer's life philosophy and to model his own life in the same way. Now, I actually know nothing about the man's life philosophy, but my point is that uh, that you cannot say to a set of accounting books, um, "Well, I got to say, you know, he he really produced some terrific revenue this year." Yeah, I know, but he also ran incredibly expenses, and he ended up in the red. He ends up in the negative. Well, yeah, but look at what the – no, it doesn't work that way. In business, you do add up the pluses, add up the negatives, work them out, and you end up with a bottom line, and it's a very significant bottom line. It means something, whether it's in the black or it's in the red. With human beings, we don't do that at all, and we say, yes, uh, there are things about this person that are admirable and good and wonderful. There are also things about him that are despicable. And, uh, and, and negative things that are, are certainly things that need to be um, discouraged or criticized. So, uh, so it is with Steve Jobs. There's a great deal that is admirable, but that doesn't mean that he becomes my hero. I've pointed out to you that in the Lord's language, in Hebrew, there is no word for hero. There's nobody in the whole five books of Moses or in the whole of the Hebrew uh, scripture that is described as as my hero. There is nobody we're supposed to emulate because everyone has characteristics that are admirable and and should be emulated and people also have uh, bad negative characteristics that should be discouraged. And you've got to be a discriminating person in order to be able to identify that, right? Uh, it's it's a mistake to say that People are are like uh, accounting books. So, you know, you do a calculator. Okay, you know, uh, Mr. Putin did this, he did that. Well, the net result is a horrible, evil, demented, despicable human being. Okay, <laughs> I mean that's that is childish. That's people who think the real world operates like Saturday morning children's television cartoons. Right? Not not how it works. But uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, fascinating person a person who will be remembered in history without question who died much too young unfortunately and i always remembered that encounter i had not with steve jobs whom i never met but with his <laughs> with his early office I, I i sometimes regret not having stuck around at least to at least meet him and uh, mr wozniak who i think and suspect is vastly underrated as a, a force in the formation of the Apple enterprise. But um, uh, at any rate, I I remembered that day. I still remember that day in 1975 very well. So naturally, when he spoke in Stanford 30 years later exactly in 2005, I was intrigued, very intrigued uh, by his words and very much caught by the language he used, you've got to find what you love, right? This is words to people who graduate in college, they're starting their career, you got to find what you love, said Steve Jobs, and that's as true for your work as it is for your lovers. I'll come back to that. Your work, said Steve Jobs, is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work, and the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. Uh, lie after lie after lie. I'm not saying I'm not saying he deli- I know he believed it when he said it. But remember what I said? Pay attention to what people do, not to what people say. And so uh, I was always fascinated by the discrepancy between how Steve Jobs lived his own life, and what he said at Stanford. Now, uh, again, I'm not taking cheap shots at him. Uh, There's not a one of us on this planet who, if we were to go through everything you said and everything you did, we'd find discrepancies. Yeah, of course, that's true for each and every one of us. But very few of us are as influential as Steve Jobs was and has been. So, um, with appreciation to, to Cal Newport, who brought it to my attention, um, it's actually quite easy to research the actual early life of Steve Jobs in 72, 73, 74, you know, what was Steve doing? and And I think it's important to know that in the months leading up to the start of Apple, Jobs was a conflicted guy. He was seeking spiritual enlightenment with Zen, And he was dabbling in electronics only when it promised to earn him some quick cash. But the notion that Steve Jobs had a passion and a love for electronics or for business or for computers, it's simply not true. And it's important that we are aware of it. In other words, I'm drawing a distinction between what Steve Jobs said and what Steve Jobs did. And I'm saying we ought to be aware of what he did because it's more important and what he said and uh, and so in in that in those early 70s uh St- Steve Jobs is a student at one of the most uh, liberal extremely left wing colleges in the state of Oregon uh called Reed College or Reed University I don't exactly remember but um uh Steve Jobs wasn't particularly interested in uh in any of, you know, he wasn't, he didn't take business courses, he didn't follow anything electronic, he studied uh, things like Western history, and he studied dance, if you don't mind, yeah, dance, can you believe dance is a university course? Well, yeah, in uh, in a liberal arts college, yeah, probably is, and he was also very interested in Eastern mysticism, Zen and Buddhism and so on, and um Anyway, he sort of, uh, he hung out at what was a big thing in California in those days, and that is the Hare Krishna movement. Um, you must remind me to tell you my story of my encounter with one of the uh, top leadership of the Hare Krishna uh, movement of Indian spirituality. And um, uh, But at any rate, uh, Steve Jobs was involved, like many people were, with the Hare Krishna temple. And uh, then he got himself a night shift job at Atari. Atari is a very early um, sort of—I mean, let's call it a computer company. But at this period in the early seventies, it was it was really the the very beginning of everything. So Atari is—I uh, think it was in San Jose at the time—and um, Steve Jobs was working there, but he was also hanging out at a commune north of San Francisco. And um and he even quit Atari in order to go to India for one of those spiritual journeys. You remember the Beatles earlier had done the same. People did that. People went to India to find their spiritual essence. So his job at a, at a very early computer company was not enough to keep his attention, right? Because he uh, at this point is busy following his heart, right? His he's doing what he loves, which is hanging out in the Hare Krishna temple or going to India to follow up on spirituality. And then when he came back from India, instead of picking up work at the Atari Computer Company, which is what you would do if you were passionate and you loved computers and electronics, no! Uh, he started training uh, to be a monk at the uh, Zen Center in Los Altos. Right, Los Altos is... Uh, uh, near, it's in Silicon Valley near San Jose, and uh, that is, uh, you know, that's that's what happened. Um, Steve Wozniak was designing a, a certain kind of a very early version of a terminal, a computer terminal, and Wozniak was genuinely a, a, an electronics um, wizard. I mean, he loved it, he was good at it, he understood it. Unlike Wozniak. Um, uh, excuse me, unlike Steve Jobs. Wozniak had actually studied college, uh, studied electronics and computers at college, uh, but Wozniak hated the business side of things. So he got hold of Jobs, his his longtime friend, uh, to handle the details of the programming and, and, and design work Wozniak was doing for a very early terminal. I forget the name of the company he was going to do it for, it doesn't matter. But... Um, uh, Jobs is taking care of the business side. Wozniak is doing the design of this thing, a, a, a computer terminal, very early version of that. And um, uh, Jobs walked out to spend more time at the commune. And um, and when when he f- spent a few months at the commune, he went back and his work with Wozniak, he'd been terminated. He was, he was replaced. So uh, you, you've got to see that um, that that Jobs, leading up to the the founding of Apple, don't think that he followed his own advice, right? That uh, that's not what happened, and um, and and the the arrival at at Apple and the story of Apple founding. Let's put it this way: If Steve Jobs had taken his own advice and decided to only pursue work that he loved he would probably have lived many years or whatever however many years he had as one of the los altos zen center's most popular teachers and preachers because that's what he loved doing that was and so if we follow if he'd followed his advice that's where he would be but he didn't follow his own advice apple computer was not born out of steve jobs passion for computers and electronics it wasn't that at all to be honest it was a lucky break. It was a, a, a little scheme that unexpectedly took off. And so we got to know that for Steve Jobs himself, his own advice of follow your passion was actually not very useful advice at all. So again, let's see what people do, not what they say. And what Steve Jobs did was to throw himself into Apple with incredible devotion and dedication, building up his passion for it. Let me make that clear. His work at Apple in the early years was not because he felt passion for electronics. He didn't. He felt passion for Eastern mysticism. But he threw himself into it. It was work he felt needed to be done, and he found out he was good at it, and he did it, but um, the passion grew out of that. You understand? He did not build Apple because he was passionate about computers and design. He became passionate about Apple and about computers and about design because he had invested so much of himself in this fledgling enterprise. That's the really important thing. And so, um, as I say, I'm I'm recording this uh, in in, uh, March 2022, but it doesn't matter. Uh, It's just that on my mind at the moment is the thought that in a couple of months, students are going to be graduating, young people are going to be thinking what they're going to do with their lives. Maybe you're not a young person. Maybe you've decided that you've been wasting your time and talents up till now and you want to do something different and you hear about Steve Jobs' 2005 speech at Stanford, and you say, well, I've got to really sit down and figure what I'm passionate about. I've got to sit down and figure what I truly, truly love, right? And I'm going to tell you that no, you're a happy warrior. That's not what you do. What you do is you do the work you should be doing, and then you learn to love it. Steve Jobs in his speech at Stanford you may remember I said I'd come back to it he used these words you've got to find what you love and that is as true for your work as it is for your lovers okay uh wrong okay you don't go seeking if you're a man you don't go seeking till you find the woman you fall in love with or you no that's not how it works you choose the right woman I mean, obviously there's got to be attraction, but you choose the right woman and then you come to love her. I mean, that's so obvious, so straightforward. It's so clear that that is the roadmap to a successful life as opposed to the horrible dangers of marrying somebody simply because your heart and your emotions tell you. Uh, So it says Steve Jobs, you've got to love what you do. No, that's not true. It's a promise. You will come to love what you do, provided you throw yourself into it with full commitment. You will come to love the woman you choose, provided you throw yourself into the relationship with full commitment. And so Jobs is exactly right. I mean, he he, he brilliantly shows sparks of intuition in in almost everything he did in his life. Great sparks of intuition. And here, I don't think he could explain. If you went to him afterwards, I doubt he could have said, you know, we said to him, hey, Steve Jobs, why did you include the thought about lovers in your discussion about economics and business and jobs? And I'm not sure he necessarily would have known that the five Fs link everything and that family and finance go together and that the uh, re- the, uh, the the relationship between a man and a woman profoundly affect the financial destiny of that man. Hugely important. So this is uh, something that I want to make clear. Right? We are choosing whether you're a young person starting a career, whether you're an older person, not so young anymore, changing a career, and you want to know hey, I've got to listen to Steve Jobs. I've got to find what I love. I cannot adequately stress that this is a road to doom and hopelessness. Um, You know, to to put it bluntly, um, nobody really cares about what you love. And, uh, you know, you can love all kinds of different things. Now, if you happen to have an absolutely innate, real, tangible talent for something specific, it's important to bear that in mind and take that into account. But for most of us, we could have done a lot of different things, a lot of different things. (laughs) Could I have been happy as a plumber? Absolutely. Really, yes. Because if I would have thrown myself into it and uh, built up a plumbing company, then it would have left me leisure time to engage in the Bible study that's so important to me. It would have been a part of my life all along, but um, yes, I could have done a lot of different things, and that's true for all of us. And uh, what happens at the end of the day is a function of the commitment we launch ourselves into something with. That's that's the really key thing that's going on here. So, how do you choose what you should do? It's very simple, and sometimes you need to work together with somebody—a friend, a trusted friend, or advisor. Uh, who can be honest and will be willing to tell you things you do not want to hear. And, of course, you already know as a happy warrior that you are capable of hearing things you don't like emotionally. But you need to sit down with somebody, ideally, and you need to evaluate what would be the most useful thing I could do for the majority of people. Well, how do you judge that? It's very simple. You judge it by money. This is the great thing about money. And I can't tell you how often um, I find in comments to uh, to the podcast or to one of my lectures, uh, how many times somebody pops up and says, you know, I, I don't like money. I want to think that I am driven by higher things than just money. I get this an awful lot of times. And uh, as a matter of fact, there, funnily enough, I did a uh, an interview with a podcast called Kosher Money on YouTube, of all places, and uh, and it's had about nearly half a million views. I mean, it's it really went crazy. Um, and on on the Kosher Money podcast, I'm I'm talking about some of the things I'm discussing here. I'm talking about the fact that money is a fantastically untainted. And neutral indicator of value, right? There's nobody's emotions involved. uh, Whether they like you or they don't like you, the color of your skin, your gender, nothing matters. Money is a beautiful way of evaluating the value of whatever it is you're delivering. It's simple, and so you need to sit down, ideally with somebody truthful. And you've got to figure out what is the best value you can deliver. Let me give you an example. You might say to yourself, look, I have the capacity. Uh, I'm just really good with my hands. I love uh, working with people. Let's say you get it into your head that you could be, you could deliver value as a dentist. And you say, well, you know, how do I get to be a dentist? Well, I've got to go to dental school. And to do that, I need money. Okay, fine. Maybe I can borrow money, get a student loan. Well, all right. If you were sitting and talking to me, I would continue this conversation because I would say to you, you know, at the present time, at the time I'm recording this, let's assume you're listening at the present time as well, the inflation level is very high. I am very persuaded that the inflation level in the United States of America is significantly higher than the official figures granted by the administration. And under those sad circumstances, when a country is suffering crippling levels of inflation, what it means is that it's a bad time to own money because your little pile of money and you've been storing it up in a bank account or you've been keeping it in dollars under your mattress... And uh, you've got this little pile of money. And the terrible thing is that with 7, 8, 9, 10% inflation, every single week, that pile of money is worth less. It's like, it's like termites eating away at it. And so it's, it's a bad time to own money. You've got to figure out a way to get a hedge against inflation. You've got to do that. But conversely, in the same way as it's a bad time to own money, Inflation is actually a very good time to owe money, not own, not O-W-N, but O-W-E, owe money. Why? Now, again, uh, please don't automatically take this as your rabbi advising you to run out and borrow money. It's not so simple. Depends what for, depends on the terms, It depends what the plan is, the use of the proceeds. But bottom line, if you can get hold of cheap money now in a form of a student loan that will give you the ability in the course of the next three or four years to become, shall we say, a dentist, just as an example, and you have a talent for that, and you have the uh, the resilience and the determination and the perseverance to go through dental school, I'd say, yeah, great. And you know what? You'll never go hungry. You'll, uh, you'll, you'll be able to make a living. Uh, Because you are delivering value to people, so go for it. Uh, If, on the other hand, you know you might say, "Look, I, I I have no capacity to become. I'm not academic. I can't do that." Um, You know, I might say, "Great. uh, Are you good at working outdoors with your hands?" So. There are ways that you can deliver real value. Things that women would not be willing to do. Don't compete with women. Do not become a nurse. Do not become an elementary school. Well, elementary school teacher these days comes with such benefits and such advantages. I, I think I'd rethink that. But um, you know, become a, a welding specialist. Become a rigger. There are so many fields that. And, and again you can make very good money. Well, are you telling me I should choose my career just on the basis of money? Right. Exactly. You got it. Precisely. Because that is the genius and the brilliance and the wonder of an economic system. It is built on people becoming obsessively preoccupied with the needs of other people. That's what this is all about. Designed, By God himself. And so, correctly, your best way to figure out where you fit in into this vast tapestry of economic genius is you've got to find where you can deliver the most value. How do you do that? Well, it's simple. Where can you make the most money? And so... Uh, why did I mention the uh, podcast I did on kosher money? Great title, by the way, uh, because there were so many in the comments, like there were more than 700 comments in, in the first few weeks. Um, many, I wouldn't say many, a lot of the comments, there was a conspicuous number of comments. And I, I, I looked at them, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15, uh, which were from people who um, were offended. <laughs> uh, they couldn't handle my speaking positively about money Uh, because they know money is bad and it's more important to be dedicated to compassion or to people or to things that really matter or to the world or to whatever, but not money. So, so much successful and evil propaganda has indoctrinated people against money that for many people, it is truly painful. It provokes cognitive dissonance when they hear me say, find out what you need to do in order to make the most money and go for it. Well, doesn't that make me very materialistic? Look, uh, try and break away from the contemporary tendency to label people by names that actually don't mean it. Oh, he's a racist. He's a sexist. He's a this. He's a that. He's an Islamophobe. He's a homophobe. Uh, forget it. Uh, you know, if feel free to criticize people's actions. But don't give them labels that uh, there is no way for them to shed. Because once somebody has called you a name, it is very difficult to do anything about it. He's a wife beater. Okay, you're already indicted. End of story. So um, uh, be, be sure that you are able to um, figure out you know, what it is that bothers you about money, and that will help you overcome it. And realize that it is a very valid way of finding out how you can best serve God's other children. Don't seek to make money by doing the things you love because that means you're not focused on being preoccupied with the needs of your fellow human beings. That tells me you're preoccupied with your own needs, right? It's it's not a, a good thing to do. Uh, you like fishing. Well, you've, I've got to find a way of making money from going fishing. Maybe I can take people fishing. Maybe I can okay, you're competing with a lot of other people and you're not particularly well qualified to teach people about fishing. You know may, I don't know maybe you are. Maybe you can tie flies for trout fishing in mountain streams in Montana. That may work for you. It'll work for a small number of people. But uh, no, no. Uh, funnily enough, I, re- I used to know back in South Africa, a man who built one of the greatest seafood companies uh, in the entire world. And you could not find anybody who was less interested in fish innately. Now he is. Now he's passionate about his business. And um, I remember being present at a debate at my parents' home where a an academic, a university professor um, in in something to do with uh, sustainable fisheries and so on, was arguing with this guy, and uh, this guy was just smiling and saying, "You know, you're wrong about that. This is the reality." Because this guy owned several hundred ships engaged in fishing, and he uh, he, 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 he he exported fish around the world. And eventually, in frustration, the university professor around my parents' table said to this gentleman, um, he said, you keep saying I'm wrong. What do you know about this? What are your qualifications? I have four degrees, two postgraduate degrees, and eventually the fellow, when it's quietened down, the businessman said to the academic, "Um, my qualifications, you ask about, my qualifications are that I made $4.5 billion in revenue from fish. Last year. How much did you make? That means something. There is a validity to that argument. He certainly didn't go into fishing because he loved it. An opportunity presented itself, and he was able to get a job helping out with the books right? He had done bookkeeping at high school. He was able to help out with the books of a small fishing enterprise owned by a Greek immigrant to South Africa. And things went on from there. Well, today he's passionate about the fishing industry, but that's because he's thrown himself into it. And this is the important thing. Um, we love that in which we're invested. I don't think I have to argue with you about the simple fact that in general, Parents love children more than children love parents. There are a lot of ways that we can prove that. You think about it, you'll figure it out for yourself. And uh, the reason is very simple, and that is parents are much more invested in children than children are in parents. Parents gave birth. Parents saw children through childhood sicknesses. They did these, for they bought things for them. They took care of them. And all that investment in something affects your emotions. It makes you love it. That's why, by the way, the more committed you are to your wife, the more you end up loving her. Because emotions follow actions. Do not try and make your actions follow your emotions. For heaven's sake, that's what I've been talking about the last hour. That's what this is all about. Don't do that. Your emotions will follow your actions. Do the right actions. Emotions will follow right actions. Choose Business, career, action, a profession, a livelihood that you can make the most money at, whatever that is, right? You can't, you know, you probably are not going to become a top-rate ballet dancer. So choose something that will make you the most money, whatever it is, even if you think it's work that's beneath you. But right? I uh, I met somebody in Kansas City where I gave some lectures a few months ago and I love the fact I was going around the room and I asked people what they do. And he said, uh, I'm in garbage. I, I collect garbage. And I went to seek him out afterwards to speak to him. Well, yeah. You know, it turns out he's got a few dozen trucks and he owns some very remunerative routes in uh, Kansas City and in Lawrence, a neighboring town. And, yes, he, he's he's done extremely well being in garbage. That's fine. That's a good thing. It's wonderful. And so – Uh, The answer is the same as the uh, fisheries guy in South Africa. Um, Am I embarrassed? Would I be embarrassed to be in the garbage business? No, you know, not if it made me a great deal of money and allowed me thereby to give jobs to many other people and to take care of other people and time to be able to do the things that I also want to do. And so that is the measure. And uh, I cannot stress that enough. It requires a huge rethink for you. I'm sure it does because you've been so successfully indoctrinated like all of us have by the culture to be hostile to money, to be hostile to money-making, to regard the business professional as greedy, driven by greed, motivated by greed. It's not true at all. The most successful business professionals are driven and motivated by trying to make life better for other human beings. And the byproduct of that is large flow revenue into their bank accounts. That's wonderful. That proves that you did indeed serve other human beings. And so that is uh, the important thing that I want to mention and make clear to you all for today. That means that uh, we're coming to the end of the show. Until next week when we can be together again, I am your rabbi assuring you that you must move onwards and upwards in your five Fs. Try and move onwards and upwards with your finances and your family and your faith and your fitness and your friendships. Yes, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.